Welcome to the Real Estate Monopoly podcast, a podcast where we bring on multifamily investors and discuss real estate and their journeys to financial freedom. Each episode, we deliver inspiring and educational content that will empower you to launch your real estate investing career and achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Kerwin Donis. Welcome back to the Real Estate Monopoly. Today's guests are actually business partners. They met paragliding and they say they have a lot in common. Adam Landy and Justin Hoggett are both the founders of Happy Camper Capital, an investment capital firm and operations hub for their outdoor hospitality properties. This was such an interesting asset class and niche in real estate to learn about. So without further ado, let's dive into the episode. Hey, everyone. Thank you for tuning into the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. This is your co-host, Jeffrey Donis, alongside my partners and brothers, Kerwin and Kenneth Donis. Today on the show, we'll be having Justin Hoggett and Adam Lendy. Uh, do you both mind introducing yourself to the audience? Yes, absolutely. I'll jump in first. Um, I'm Adam Lendy. I'm one of the partners of Happy Camper Capital and Beyonder Campgrounds. And I'm Justin Hoggett. And uh, also with Happy Camper Capital, I've uh, been in real estate for little over a decade now, uh, moved from single family homes to apartments and now RV parks and campgrounds. Awesome. Well, I would like to start off with first how you guys started your partnership. I mean, I really do want to dig into how you guys got started in real estate in general, but I guess we can start with the partnership. How did that come, come about? And then if you guys each want to touch on your individual stories as to how you guys got started, I would love that. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'll take it kind of in reverse order if you don't mind. Um, so kind of getting into real estate, you know, it's, it, for most people, it's not their first career, although for you guys, it might be, <laughs> uh, you know, for me, it was probably, it was a, it was really like a third career. Um, you know, I had a background in commercial construction and that turned into law enforcement for a decade as a police officer. And, you know, ultimately it was just looking for that next thing to really be able to take more control. So that led me to real estate brokerage. Um, you know, and, and kind of dabbled in a few different areas there, residential and commercial and had my fun with it, but it really wasn't hitting where I wanted to go. Cause you know, obviously we, I think we're all in the same mindset that we're looking to build long-term investment strategies here. And, you know, brokerage is a very transactional thing, you know? Um, so, you know, enter Justin, you know, we met, uh, we, we met doing something we both love, which is paragliding. Um, you know, so we just fun sport, you know, recreational activity outside, I guess that kind of started the theme for it. You know, we came to find out that we had these crazy parallel families, you know, that where we were both in real estate, wives were both therapists, we had girls, boys, German shepherd dogs, the whole things like we were just a freaky, weird mirror image of each other. Um, and, you know, Justin had more of the investing mindset. And, you know, he was really the catalyst that pushed us into this. He had the idea for, you know, RV parks, outdoor hospitality, and he really just, he kept, he kept telling me, kept telling me I wasn't listening at first. And finally, finally I listened and you know, the rest is history, you know, it's something we're both excited about and, you know, excited to make our, our full-time venture. Yeah. And then just to add to that, you know, um, we met paragliding obviously, and, and it was kind of at a weird time where I had been in apartments and, um, dealing with tenants and self-managing all of our properties and, and I, I was just kind of in this weird space that I was like, you know, I kind of want to do something different. And, uh, and it was also at a time when my wife, Melissa, where we've been business partners in our uh, apartments and houses for many years. 
And she was kind of moving on a little bit to a therapy a little bit more, leaving me out alone in a sense. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. And, and then I met Adam and I was like instantly drawn to Adam. And I said, you know, I'm going to work with that guy. That guy's, he's got drive, he's honest and has high integrity, which in my book is, is everything. And so uh, I was just kind of pitching the idea of outdoor hospitality because I'd taken a long trip on the road and, and uh, for a year with the family and realized that like, this is cool. This is fun. I want to, I want to be a part of this. I want to um, grow with this. I want to have my own parks so that I can go stay at and have fun at. And um, just kind of came uh, conversational with Adam and finally um, turned into something where we could both set our sights on it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And, and Justin, you mentioned that you started in uh, focusing on apartments and then you got into the RV and um, that space. Do you mind talking about what types of asset classes you were focused on in regards to the multifamily um, and why that was something that you wanted to, to leave? I mean, I don't know if you're still currently focused on that, but it seems like you guys are pretty heavily focused on RVs. Um, and do you mind touching on that space as well? Sure. Um, well, you know, I, I kind of started where a lot of investors start and that's with uh, the first house, you know, we moved out of our house and uh, made it our first rental and then just saved all the money from that and bought another house. And, um, and then finally I said, you know what, I got to make a change and I can't do this nine to five W two job. I can't do this anymore. Uh, made a goal to uh, get out of it within four months. It was over the summer and decided that I was going to essentially be available for my kids. Uh, and once school year started, then I would, I would quit my job and be able to be home, work from home and went down to Pueblo to be exact and um, bought about a dozen homes in four months. And during that time, I got that energy focused. And next thing you know, I have a nine-unit apartment building laying in my lap. And uh, and I say that because it was such a great deal um, from a uh, mentor of mine. And he he um, he's like, "This is too small for me, so you can have it," you know, type of thing. Uh, and then and then I never looked back. I didn't. We didn't buy any more homes. Well, actually, we did buy one or two um, that were good deals. But but then we shifted to the apartments. Um, after that, we ended up with, with multiple apartment buildings in Denver and in Greeley, um, you know, and, and the, it's nice because if you have a vacancy, then you're not stuck holding the bag in a sense, you know, it kind of the way it goes. And then, um, also be able to increase the rents and, uh, reduce the expenses to the point where it just makes the building that much more profitable as you guys know. Um, and then, and then after, after kind of getting involved with the tenants and not really totally enjoying them, um, we could have hired a property manager and we, we will still on what we have, but um, that's when I just made the shift to something um, hospitality wise. Um, but uh, if, if the right deal comes around, yeah, I'll, I'll still probably, I'll do an apartment building, but it's not my focus at this point. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And Adam, I know that you, uh, you mentioned your kind of your story, but um, I assume you were in, in the multifamily space, or if so, do you mind just touching on how you got into this the space that you're currently in now? And um, I'm not sure if you guys both had that in mind when you guys met up in regards to your, your partnership. But do you mind just touching on that? Yeah, for sure. You know, multifamily wasn't really my thing, at least at, not at the time when we met. Uh, although, had we not made the pivot toward RV parks, I'm sure Justin probably would have gotten me to go down that path with him. Um, my side, you know, has been single families, um, had a few of those and, 
And and brokerage, like I said, I spent some time in brokerage. I got really good at sales, and 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 I, and none of that I regret. Like I said, it's not ultimately the path I wanted to go, but the skills that I've taken away from that, you know, have made have been really instrumental in helping us grow this business. You know, learning how to lead generate, learning how to go, you know, find deals, find investors. Um, so you know, all that experience was incredibly relevant. All, even though I wasn't in maybe the the multifamily space per se, um, you know. But I got to enjoy something. I, I got to maybe skip a step in Justin's journey to get to where we are now. And then not to say that maybe this is one's hierarchical better than the other. Um, but the idea being that, you know, this is just something that's fun. You know, super high return properties. They're fun. Like we actually got to go live in this, this park for three weeks, this last one we bought um, with our families. You know, our, my, my son got to fish out of the lake. My daughter got to work in the store and help, you know, clean up for ice cream cones. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's just a, a really fun space to be in. That's really awesome. And um, so you mentioned that you guys transitioned into the RV space. I'm just curious, how does an RV in terms of an asset, um, how is that different from apartments? Good question. Um, you know, both, you know, rely on their ability to generate revenue, you know, as part of the value. That's why we look at cap rates. You know, that's why we, we focus on the, the profit and loss of the property. Um, you know, I would say it's, it's a little more, more so on the RV parks though, because if you actually took these things and you took the business out, they'd be worth a lot of times, maybe a quarter of what they sell for, you know, fractional because it's just land with minimal improvements. Um, so it's really on us to make sure that we're staffing these things properly, putting the right amenities in to draw people in because it's a hospitality business. Yeah, certainly a lot of goodwill that you're buying. Uh, so much more of a business sense. You know, we have, um, there's also a lot more employees uh, to run the park, being hospitality check-ins, check-outs, uh, different kind of maintenance. Uh, the apartments, you know, you might have uh, a full-time maintenance guy and he runs around and, you know, you, but you'll have to um, replace a lot of refrigerators and microwaves or whatever it is. And those expenses can be a lot higher uh, for the property. And then they, um, you know, get written off in a different way. And, um you know, RV park is just basically the land. I mean, obviously you have a store and some other uh, buildings and structures and pool or whatever, but the the land, I mean, how much maintenance is necessary in the land kind of, yeah. And how, how hard can it be for uh, someone to, to break it? You know, uh, an apartment building, you know, you guys might've seen, I mean, it's, it's just like some tenants will move out and you're like, are you serious? You just did that in like less than a year, maybe in less than a couple of months. I mean, I have some pretty good stories, but uh, an RV park, you know, it's pretty hard to mess up. And if, if they do, then it's very easy to kick them out too. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And honestly, we, uh, we've never had anyone that does like a recreational park or an RV park or something like that. Um, so I'm just curious, uh, how are you guys going about finding these, these deals at the moment? That's a good question. So you guys being in the commercial space um, know that when a broker has a property listed to the public, it's typically for one of a couple of reasons, right? You know, one is that maybe they don't have the network to support selling it because obviously their goal is to double end that sale and get it in front of people they know first. Or the other reason is that the property is, you know, maybe not desirable. And it's, I think that's even, you know, amplified in the RV park world. Um, we're in a seller's market right now. So if you see a listed property from a broker, you know, good chance that it's probably not a good one. Um, and we found that with a lot of those and, and not to say that we don't look at properties from brokers, you know, we have a bunch of brokers we network with our last 
last acquisition came from a broker we know. Um, however, you know, like I said, we've sifted through a lot more of those that weren't as desirable um, for, for a lot of reasons. They weren't going to be profitable. They weren't going to fit our model. Um, it's just that they, they weren't a good property for, for multitude of reasons. And we're very niche even within the RV park space, I should say. You know, some people confuse us with mobile home parks. We're not a mobile home park. You know, we, these are vacation spots. At least, again, this is a hospitality business. These are places you go for fun. Um, so, you know, we've, we've come up with some lead generation strategies for getting these on, uh, you know, directly from the owners before they've listed, you know, getting in front of the owners, um, you know, making our value proposition before anybody else has a chance to compete with us on it. So, you know, contacting the owners directly by phone, tracking them down over the internet. Um, there are a lot of ways you can do it. That's really interesting. So, uh, you know, assuming you get a property under contract and then you close, um, and let's say you do whatever kind of remodeling you need to do to get the property ready. Um, who do you target in terms of like their demo, your target demographic for the property? What, what, is, what does that population look like? I, th- I think it's um, a little bit different depending on the park that you're actually going for. Um, you know, on the South, South States, you know, you have a lot of retirees, uh, being, being that we just closed one in the Midwest, it's a little bit different crowd, more family focused was this park. Um, so, uh, I think it just depends the, um, and then some of them like the South States, for example, for the retirees, they might be there for a really long time. So, um, not as I would say not as hospitality focused. Um, and then, um, the park that we have is a getaway park where, we want it to be a destination park. We want people to ha- come and have fun. Uh, we hope to have more day passes, make it a crowded atmosphere um, during the week, but it's really focused on the weekend travelers. Gotcha. That, that's really cool. So, and I'm, I'm curious, you guys, of course, it's just land. So I'm just curious to see what you guys actually do in terms of value add, because of course, you know, it's still a business, so it, it's uh, evaluated on what it produces. So how are you guys able to kind of go in and, you know, add value or manage it better? Well, this is the fun part. So there, there are two ways you can turn around an RV park. You know, one is going to be with physical condition. So you might get one that's just run down, hasn't been maintained well, hasn't been updated in years. You know, you've got a lot of opportunity to go in, just clean it up, put lipstick on it, make it look really nice. And, and you know, it's, it's going to attract more people for that. Um, you know, the other side, as far as making them more profitable, and I know this isn't what you asked, but the other turnaround is running the business better. And of course, again, with these being, you know, highly staffed businesses, you know, especially compared to an apartment building or a mobile home park, um, you know, there, there's a lot of opportunity to run a better business in some cases, if that's where the opportunity lied. Um, as far as doing upgrades to it, though, you're right. I mean, land is the main component. Um, however, we have infrastructure in place. So sometimes it might be, you know, upgrading the power. Older RV parks used to use, you know, have 30 amp power supplies to each site because that's what, you know, RVs of yesteryear used. Well, we've got power hungry RVs nowadays that want 50 amps or even higher. So, we, you know, upgrading the power is going to bring more people in, making sure that every site has sewer, sewer at it properly. Those are some of the basic infrastructure things. Um, but then we get to do the fun stuff like adding amenities. You know, like, put, so putting in little perks that get people in, like, I'll give you a great example. Nobody in Eastern Iowa, our last acquisition, was familiar with stand-up paddle boards. We added some stand-up paddle boards in our lake out there, and, and they're renting out all the time now. You know, so it's just it really neat little things like that you get to go through and tweak. We have a camp store. So we get to, you know, we get to decide what inventory sells well, you know, what, uh, what, what things can we put in front of people to create more opportunities to bring people in. 
Um, and that's just on, on the, on the physical side of things, you know, then we still have the opportunity yet because this is a hospitality business. You talked about obviously like rent optimization in an apartment building. Well, we get to do the same exact thing, only we're doing it much shorter terms. Instead of doing year leases, we're doing weekend, you know, week, but we get to find ways to, you know, boost them around holidays and, you know, around, uh, or based on the occupancy of the park. So a lot, a lot of opportunities to really find the upside. And, and I'll add to that uh, software is, is a big thing. You know, we, uh, we've realized that, I mean, probably at this point, I don't know the real statistics, but about 50% of parks aren't utilizing a software for online reservations. Uh, they might have a website. They might say here, reserve now and call us or whatever, but ultimately um, software is a huge bonus to a park being that you can reserve online. You don't have to take the phone call. So it reduces man hours, but also makes it easier for the, for the guests to actually make that reservation. Uh, and then uh, nightly rates, adjusting those. I mean, it's just been one of those things in the past that people have said, our nightly rate is $32 a night, whatever it is. And they put that across every night for the whole year. Well, I mean, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, there's there's holidays and there's weekends and uh, special events or whatever it is. Uh, what if it's a special event and the occupancy is 100%? You know, why are you not capitalizing on the demand that's there? So using a yield management and, and dynamic pricing model can make a huge difference. Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, something that comes to mind is um, I assume that you guys are um, the occupancy changes based on the seasons, right? So if it's winter time, maybe the RV park, I would assume decreases in occupancy. Um, how are you guys coping with that? And is that just based on the geo? Do you guys specifically target certain locations that don't have a, you know, a, as a dramatic change in climate, for example, and that would prevent anything like that from happening? Well, you, you know, you're buying, you're buying it for a business as is. And so you're taking it, for what it produces at the time, obviously. And so a lot of the uh, parks in the um, northern uh, 48 will have uh, seasonal parks. So open basically May 1 to November 1. And you buy it for that. Uh, yes, there's a sh uh, startup and a shutdown of the park. Um, but the, the our last acquisition, though, has uh, winter sites. And so a lot of the sites are still open for the winter, which is nice because it does provide additional cash flow through the winter. Um, there's a few mobile homes on the property that, um, you know, have people watch over the property as well. But, um, you know, there's, there's a couple of bonuses of a seasonal park. One is that it becomes slow and you don't have to worry about it as much. You know, if you, if you got a park in the South and it's open year round and, um, you know, I guess there's, there's different opportunities depending on where it's at. And they still have seasonal fluctuations. So even like in Florida, for example, their peak season is November through April, you know, and they're slower in the summertime. I mean, granted, they're open the whole time so they can take people, whereas, you know, for example, some of these parks completely shut off. Um, and those ones there, they've just built a budget model around that condensed year and they make hay while the sun's shining. Yeah, this sounds like we have no really a lot of experience in the RV space and um, we come from a background in apartments. So as you guys are aware, we raise capital um, from passive investors. Uh, do you guys also raise capital for these projects? We do. So that's um, happy camper capital is our acquisition side. And that is where we actually bring investors and deals together to consummate the sale. And then of course we have beyond our campground management, which is our you know public facing camp management side. So we are sponsor operators. 
Awesome. And um, so just curious, what are the risks associated with RV parks besides the seasonal changes? Um, are there any other risks and uh, how do they differ from risks in, say, investing in an apartment syndication deal? Justin, I'll let you take the part on the, the comparison to apartments. Um, you know, I, I would say the, the risks that we have are, you know, we have regulatory risks. I mean, you, you always have, you know, the chance that something could change that could affect your operation. Um, a great example is on this most recent acquisition. Um, we had our local natural resources office tell us that, you know, we had to fix our sewage processing system. And it was a, a big deal. I mean, it could have been a deal killer for a lot of people. Thankfully, we found out in our due diligence that it was going to be about a half a million dollar repair and we were prepared for it. But that change had that, that weren't made, that could have been enough to shut us down. Um, you know, although you could deal with this in any sort of business, um, you know, I would say the other things are just changing trends. Um, you know, so great examples, again, we're focused on destination RV parks. So we're like, again, the fun properties, these saw a huge uptick last year. Um, all the signs and I, and I could quote data all day long, but are showing that it's, it's an increasing trend. Millennials are the biggest user group of RVs right now. All the people who started doing it last year say, you know, the majority said they're going to keep doing it. So it's showing signs of heading in the right direction, but at the same time, there are what we call overnight RV parks. These are the even shorter term ones. These are those little ones you see right off the side of the interstate that's nothing but a parking lot with some dirt in it. And, you know, you only stop there because you're too tired to keep driving and you pick up and go the next morning. A lot of those ones we looked at um, declined last year. People weren't doing as much long distance travel. They were staying within a couple hours of home. So, you know, that's a risky run too, is that you just have to be cognizant of the trends and make sure that you're staying up with them. But uh, like I said, I'll defer to Justin for comparison to apartments. Yeah. Yeah. And I like to mention the trends. Um, another risk I think would be uh, weather. You know, we, we can't control the weather. Um, you know, if it's, if you got monsoon weather going through the whole year and, and just people aren't camping because it's raining the whole time, I mean, that's, that's a pretty big risk or, or if there's tornadoes headed towards you, you know, and, uh, we, last year there was a, uh, derecho is pretty funny. I mean, I've never heard of derecho before, but, um, Iowa there, did you guys hear about the derecho? <laughs> but, uh, the derecho last year is kind of like an inland hurricane and it, uh, messed up a lot of trailers and there was a lot of insurance claims. Uh, and then with that also insurance being that it is a, a outdoor camping environment, people tend to get hurt, uh, a little bit more than apartments. Um, so I guess there's that risk as well because it's uh, more recreational, but, um, but then the apartments, you know, everyone needs a place to live. Um, it's, you know, you, you make a nice place to live. People are going to want to rent it generally. And of course, you know, what's your pricing point? Um, you know, hopefully you're not getting a bunch of comp competition that you didn't expect. Um, but you generally, you know what you're getting into, uh, campgrounds, uh, you know, you have, um, you have to keep up with it. You have to uh, provide different amenities. Um, it is hospitality. You know, there's different interests. Um, you know, people might be biking more uh, over the next five years than we expect. So you just got to know those trends and, and watch them a little bit differently. Yeah, no, that's great. And uh, Adam, you touched on due diligence uh, and that was, um, I forget exactly what you mentioned, but I really would like to know what are some things that you guys look out for when you're going on to do DD for these properties? Um, obviously, multifamily and RV parks are very different, but for us, we, we pretty much look at the standard, and I assume it's definitely got some big differences. So do you mind just touching on that? Yeah, you know, a lot of it's going to be the same. So you're still going to be looking at a profit and loss. 
you're still going to be doing your inspections of the property itself, your physical on-site inspections. You're going to be reviewing your lease agreements, you know? Um, so, so there, there's a lot of the core stuff that's the same. I'd say, you know, with us where, where the due diligence really gets more granular is just when we get into the nitty gritty of how they ran their business, you know, the, the, the like how they ran their store, what they were doing. Um, you know, granted, we also take that with a grain of salt because we, we can change a lot of the stuff. We can improve things. We don't have to run it the way they were running it. Um, but one of the big things uh, is staffing, for example, like a, a lot of RV park owners are mom and pops. They aren't multi-park owner operators, you know, that are going to have re- remote managed and have a, a manager on payroll. They are usually just, they're, they're the ones running the operation. So what we find sometimes is you get these parks and we have to hire three or four people to replace mom and pop because they were so integral to the business. They were working 80 hours a week to keep the operation going. So that, that's a big one for us. Um, Justin, what else we got? Um, you know, it, it's funny. Some of the things that you stumble upon that, um, that matter a lot. And, and one of those would be like, for instance, water. I mean, you know, you don't have to test water when you, uh, when you're buying a home or apartment building, uh, for, for a campground that's on a well, I mean, there's, there's some parks that are on city tap, but, um, most of them I'd say are on well. So you have to just make sure that you've got the proper um, systems in place and you're, you know, that the chlorine levels are right and, and different aspects of that. You know, a lot of times you're not testing uh, pools, but those are, those are other areas. Um, you know, so the biggest items on a, a campground would be just electrical and sewer and plumbing. Just, you know, there's not, there's not a lot of the, you know, there's no walls to really check. Um, so it's just, how's that infrastructure set up? Awesome. Well, I'd love to kind of get into our express round since I want to give both of you ample time to answer each question. Uh, first question, and I, we can start with Justin and he's at the top. Uh, what is the biggest mistake you've made in real estate and what did it teach you? Okay. Well, uh, there's a house that I bought. Uh, many years ago that I called it the best mistake I ever made. And that's because I did all the work. I did the entire renovation. Um, it was really cool because I got to, I, I basically say I built the house. Um, I gutted it and did the whole thing myself. Uh, but the biggest thing I learned from that is I just wasted, you know, I think it was six months of my time. I was working a W2 job and, and going there at night. And so uh, every night from five to 11, I was working and, and repeating. So it was a, it was a very hard time for me and my family, um, but uh, but it also helped with with uh, moving forward. So uh, lesson there is um, don't try to do everything yourself. I could have gotten a lot farther, I think, if I had not tried to do the whole thing myself. Awesome. And Adam, if, if you, I can ask you the same question. Uh, what is the biggest mistake you've ever made when it comes to real estate? And what did he teach I've you? got one that burns for me because it was the first one. You know, I was a first-time home buyer at 22, um, bought a house just on the outskirts of the Denver area for a hundred thousand dollars, which if you know anything about the Denver market right now, that's unheard of, not even, not even close to reality. In fact, that same place today is worth about three fifty. It wasn't, it wasn't anything special, but it was, you know, good for a first timer. Um, you know, and I bought it, it was right after 2008 and, and the, the market, the market then, you know, which hadn't improved much when I, two years later when I was making a move. Um, and of course I didn't have the mindset yet. And this is, it's so big having that, having that, that investor mindset, I had some limiting beliefs from my parents growing up that who had lost, they, they'd lost it on some income properties in the eighties when the, um, when, when there was a market collapse then as well. So they told me never to be a landlord. And I just, I, I had that idea out of my mind. I sold this place almost at a loss. 
I, 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 it was, it was the biggest mistake I made just because it was, I, I, I ended up walking away from that sale with about a thousand dollars in my pocket. And I, I kick myself for it today because that thing would have been a cash flow monster for what I would, what my mortgage was on it. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, second question and back to you, Justin, what is your favorite book or books? Um, you can apply this to your business life or your personal life. Sure. I mean, I, I, I'm a really bad person at remembering all the book names and, and authors and everything. I, I can tell you, I read a lot and I listen to a lot of books on tape. Uh, you know, one one that uh, we always mention on our show is the Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki. I think that's kind of a staple. Um, one of the very few books I've actually read twice, but I'm also going to mention uh, the Compound Effect. Um, that's one of my favorites because it's all about the little things and moving forward and uh, how it just everything compounds on itself. Uh, I, I've and that's one of the very few books that I've actually given away to other people as well. So that's a pretty powerful one to me. Awesome. How about you, Adam? You know, obviously Kiyosaki's Cash Flow Quadrant is definitely one of the tops of my list. But to avoid putting one out there that I think a lot of people would say, even though that one was a drastic influence in my outlook on business, um, I would say Atomic Habits by James Clear. Have you read that one? Yeah, I, def- I definitely, definitely recommend that book. <laughs> read it twice and I'm actually going back for a third time here soon. No, yeah, I love that book. Um, third question, Justin. Uh, what is a daily habit that you would accredit some of your success to? Well, you know, kind of going back to my story about um, buying at least a dozen homes in four months. I mean, that that took a lot of pressure. It's still while I had a W-2 job. And so it was about my routine. And, um, and I really attribute the miracle morning to that success. And that miracle morning was my routine. It included six different steps. Uh, it's called the savers. Um, you know, I, I think probably the best one of those is meditation. And it's weird because my wife would be like, what, how, why would you say that? Like, that's not you, but I do believe that meditation, um, is, is key and and takes us a long ways. Yeah, no, my brothers and I, we all meditate and I couldn't agree more. How about you, Adam? Yeah, I'm going to echo a lot of what Justin said and then differentiate. Um, the Miracle Morning was one that absolutely changed it for me when I got into business by my, you know, for myself. Someone gave me the book and it, it was a life changer. I had my best year in business that year and then, of course, the following year. Um, you know, and I, I've, I've since waned on a lot of those daily habits. You know, it's something I, I, we were having a conversation a little earlier, Justin and I, about how I, you know, I want to recommit to that. Uh, but the one that has had to stay consistent for me to really be myself every day is the exercise out of those savers, the E. You know, my wife and I were up every morning, you know, 4.30 to go to the gym and work out. And it sets the, sets the pace for the day. If I don't have that fitness, um, you know, it's, I, I feel it. I see it all day long. So yeah, definitely exercise has to be part of it. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. It's something that we all, like I said, we're pretty big on the same thing. We read the same book, Miracle Morning. So hundred percent couldn't agree more. Um, do you guys have a best piece of advice that you would give someone or that you've ever received? And we can go back to Justin. Well, I think mine's pretty simple. Um, and it's because I always say it and I just, I always say, take action, you know, and and I know we've all kind of heard it before, but you know, we all get stuck in analysis paralysis and we all want to, we want to know everything and, and, uh, you know, prepare for every scenario and ultimately it's never going to happen. So you just got to get started. And, and we've met a lot of people that have, 
spent thousands and thousands. I mean, at least college degrees, uh, you know, kind of money on real estate and they've never even closed a deal. And so, you know, it's just, just getting going, I think is the best bit of advice I can say. Yeah. Uh, that's something that we learned very early. It's just action is the only thing that really gets you there. And you can spend money on things or like you said, invest in your education, but education is powerless unless you actually implement it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'd say the same thing as Justin um, default to action is kind of my mantra. Um, I used to have a personality type and I don't know if you're familiar with the disc personality profile. Um, I used to be more in the C side of that. I know Justin probably wouldn't believe that now knowing me, but I used to get stuck in that analysis paralysis and things. And I would fail to take action out of fear and getting into business for myself, you know, definitely, you know, jumping in and quitting my W2 um, forced me to get out of that comfort zone. And I've shifted. And, and as I take that assessment again, now I'm in the D quadrant, which not that any one is better than the other, um, but my C traits have long since gone away. You know, I'm definitely more of that dominant driver type now. And I had to be, it was a survival thing. Um, and that just came from taking action and, and just, you, you have to do it. You have to understand what your risk tolerance is. And if you're outside of that, go. Perfect. Uh, and last question, and you guys can both you know, jump in on this one. What is the best way for people in our audience that want to get in touch with you all to learn more about what you do? Um, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you guys? Uh, best way I would say, you know, we're, we're on social media. Um, our website is happycampercapital.com. Um, but yeah, we're on social media under Happy Camper Capital. Um, if anybody's kind of curious about what our campground operation looks like, that's Beyond Our Camp. Uh, B-E-Y-O-N-D-E-R camp. So that's actually the public facing side. That's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's our, our management side. Um, and then of course, um, we've got our own, you know, podcast as well. We're on the wealth watchers podcast. Yeah. And then, uh, to add to that LinkedIn, I think is a great platform. So find me on LinkedIn, Justin Hoggett, uh, or you can email me, be happy to talk to you or respond. Justin Hoggett, uh, actually Justin at happy Awesome. Well, we really do appreciate your time, Adam and Justin. We uh, definitely look forward to hopefully doing this again sometime. Yeah, thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for having us on. Pleasure's ours. Yeah, definitely. Great time. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us today on the Real Estate Monopoly podcast. Make sure to visit our website at www.donisinvestmentgroup.com backslash monopoly where you can subscribe to our newsletter so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you got value from this episode, we'd appreciate a good rating on Apple Podcasts. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune into our next episode. Until next time, take care guys. <laughs>